Let's go to the Lord. Father, as we come to hear your word this morning, we ask that it would serve as a mirror for us. Lord, help us to be slow to look at these terrible accounts and talk about how awful they are without recognizing that there is much to learn here. Lord, we ask that you would humble us so that as we look at your word, we would see our own sinful tendencies in the lives of Amnon, in Jonadab, in Absalom, and in David. Help us to recognize that we are capable of the same sins and that it is only by your grace that we can resist temptation. God, we pray that you would speak to us now. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. That can be found on page 246 in the Pew Bibles. And so the last few weeks we've really seen a a very sobering uh, few chapters, to to put it lightly. In chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, we read about David's kindness that he shows to Mephibosheth. And then in chapter 10, we continue to see uh, David's loyalty and, and his nobility and his attempted kindness to the Ammonites and his subsequent defense of Israel. However, after these things, these, these spiritual highs, so to speak, things take a drastic turn as we read about David's sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And then just last week, we begin to see the consequences of David's actions with Nathan's, which is really the Lord's rebuke of David. And in this rebuke, the Lord says to David that because of this evil deed, the sword shall never depart from your house. And as this chapter continues, we see that David's son actually winds up dying because of this. Then we see David's repentance, and we begin to actually see the restoration of David, being restored both to the Lord as well as to his wife, Bathsheba. We see Solomon is born, and the Lord actually looks on him with favor, leading to Solomon being given a second name, Jedidiah, which literally means beloved of the Lord. And the chapter ends actually on quite the positive note with the conquest and the capture of Reba. And things really seem to be looking up at this point. But now as chapter 13 opens up, I really wish I could say that the good vibes keep on rolling. However, if you're familiar with scripture, you know that's not even almost the case. And this is when we really begin to see this pronouncement from the Lord that the sword shall never depart from your house. In fact, in his rebuke, God also says that I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And that could really serve as a summary sentence of chapter 13. We're going to see that David will reap what he has sown. God is a faithful God and what he has said will come to pass. In the midst of this turmoil that David has already begun to endure, what he will continue to endure, David and we can take comfort knowing that our God is not a liar. David will see firsthand that God means what he says. This chapter deals with two horrifying crimes, incestuous rape and premeditated murder. In other words, we see in the life of David's son's egregious sexual sin and a planned out, a premeditated murder. Does this sound familiar? Unfortunately for David, the apple does not fall far from the tree. Or as I titled my sermon today, like father, like son. This is a very sobering thought that we see play out in this narrative. 
oftentimes the faults and the failings of parents are reproduced in their children. As one Christian teacher puts it, grace does not run in the blood, but corruption does. This is a theme that is certainly seen here, but it's also seen in other accounts throughout Scripture as well. And as I was thinking about this, one name that immediately comes to mind is Lamech, who is a descendant of Cain, who boasted about his murderous tendencies, saying, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventyfold. One does not have to look far to see the increasing corruption that permeates, especially the Old Testament narratives, as descendants continuously go from bad to worse. Now, I want to clarify and say that it's not absolutely inevitable that our children will display all of our faults, but it is highly likely that they will be affected by them in some way. And of course, this isn't an excuse for children either. They can't blame their faults on their parents. However, it is a scary thought to realize that our flaws can easily appear in our children. Let this serve as a warning for us, especially for those who who are parents. Let this drive us to the throne of grace where we can receive help for those sins that so easily entangle us, knowing that we do not sin in a vacuum. Our sins do affect other people. Oftentimes, they affect the ones closest to us, such as our children. And it is in this that we see that like father, like son, can be a truly terrifying thought. As we approach this chapter, I want to try and break it down into three separate sections and then dive into these separately while trying to maintain the overall theme of the chapter. So as we come to this first section, what we see is a truly terrible and disturbing story, perhaps one of the most disturbing stories in all of Scripture. And this first story that we encounter is Amnon's passion. And so to try and give you a good sense of the flow of each account, like I just said, we will look at them in their entirety, this section, and then we'll break it down from there. And just so you know, I I want you to know that the bulk of this sermon will be centered on this first point. Um, So as we're going into uh, a while here, and and you notice that we're still on the first point, just take heart, we will move through the second points relatively quickly from, from there. But let's go ahead and look now at verses 1 through 22 of chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him, 
Then Amnon said to, to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. While this is a very hard section to read, this story is actually carefully and brilliantly told, building up to its horrendous turning point and then seeing the aftermath. This is a story that moves from love in verse 1, and I do use that word very loosely, to hatred in verse 22. And I actually have a picture of how this narrative is structured that will hopefully help you to see the trajectory and the, really the literary masterpiece that this story really is. And the first thing that we encounter as this story picks up is Amnon's love for his half-sister Tamar. Again, verse 1 opens up. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So loved is the word that is used for Amnon's feelings towards Tamar. But what he truly felt was lust. It wasn't love. It was desire. Desire is not the same thing as love. And the Hebrew word that is used here for love is the word ahav. And ahav is actually one of the many words that I learned as I was taking Hebrew. And when you're in the unenviable position where you have to memorize all of these symbols that are put together that Hebrew scholars claim are words. At least in my experience, you have to get creative in how you learn them. And so one of the ways that I would memorize a lot of these words was by just trying to think of anything that sounds remotely close to the Hebrew pronunciation. So if you were to like see me taking a quiz and, and hearing my thoughts, and it would just, I would sound insane because some of these didn't even seem like they correlated at all, but it helped me. Um, and so for the word ahav, I, I, I thought as I was studying this word, I thought of I have, I, I have to love, I have to love what, fill in the blank, ice cream, whatever it is. And, and again, I know that really doesn't make a lot of sense, but it, it did help me. So, and I got an A in the class, so, so it speaks for itself. And so as I was studying and, and I came across 
Ahav, the first thing I thought, the first thing that came to mind was that Amnon thought that he had to have Tamar. But this was very different from love. What Amnon felt was the same thing that his father David felt when he first saw Bathsheba. And Amnon was no better at dealing with his feelings than his father was. And this desire that he has actually makes him quite literally sick. Verse 2 says that Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. This should have been the first sign that what Amnon was experiencing is quite literally the opposite of actual love and affection for Tamar. Now, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians six twelve that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Love does not cause illness. Lust does. When we engage in sexual immorality, whatever it is, we are doing what is contrary to our body, which makes perfect sense why Amnon becomes sick over this desire. His love is completely misguided and inappropriate in far more ways than one. And the thing that he wanted to do to her is all too obvious. However, the barrier to his desire seems far less clear. It says that part of Amnon's torment is caused by the fact that she is a virgin. And the word that is translated virgin refers to a young woman of marriageable age. And so it seems that part of Amnon's frustration stems from the fact that Tamar is both beautiful and essentially ready. However, he can see no way to do anything to her. And some suggest that this is because of the law that explicitly forbids incest. I don't personally see this as the reason because I don't think Amnon cared at all about the law at this point. I think his heart was so darkened and he could care less about what, what the law said. As Tamar says in verse 13, Amnon is godless. I think the main reason he, he is so tormented is because he does not see a way in which Tamar would cooperate or go along with it, which is precisely what we do see later. Because unlike uh, Amnon, Tamar did care about the law. And unfortunately for Amnon, we see that he has a friend who is willing to help him with this heinous act. Some friend this guy is. Jonadab is the exact opposite of the friend that David had in Nathan, who confronted David in his sin. And instead of confronting Amnon, Jonadab aids him. This should cause us to pause here for a second and consider the type of friend that we are to others. Are we quick to look the other way when a brother or sister in Christ is caught up in sin? Or even worse, do we help to aid them in their sin? Or do we lovingly confront, knowing that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth? As we read in, as we read in Proverbs and as we heard last week from Pastor Matt, faithful are the wounds of a friend, as quoted in Proverbs 27.6. Jonadab is no friend of Amnon's. We see that Jonadab is the cousin of Amnon, and he is described as a very crafty man. This should raise red flags right here. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that there was a certain serpent in the garden in Genesis 3 that is also described as more crafty than any other beast of the field. In other words, this guy is bad news. And Jonadab comes up to Amnon and asks him, Why are you so haggard morning after morning? The CSB says, why are you so miserable morning after morning? 
Jonadab saw that something was off with Amnon. And it seems that this situation had caused Amnon to suffer an extended depression that eventually became visible to those near him. In verse 5, after Amnon confides in Jonadab, instead of Jonadab giving the advice that a true friend would give, he instead gives Amnon a plan so that he could get what he thought he wanted. And we see in verse 6 that Amnon willingly goes through with this plan. After David comes to see the sick Amnon, he asks for his sister Tamar to come instead. Basically saying, I don't want you, Dad. Go get my sister. And what is surprising is that David happily obliges. No questions asked. Verse 7, Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And here we see that word send once again. We'll see it a few more times in this chapter, and the more times it is used, we'll also see the more heartless it becomes. Another point to notice is Tamar's character. At the drop of the hat, she is more than ready to help out her sick brother. She comes right away in verse 8, ready to lend a helping hand. And I think Dale Davis does a phenomenal job not only painting the scene, but also showing Tamar's heart in this account. He says, As soon as she received word from the king, she was on her way. Her half-brother Amnon was down sick, and she was to go play cook and nurse. She was a beauty and a king's daughter, but she knew how to work. Scarcely in the door, she became a flurry of industry. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. Then she took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. Too sick to eat? Too weak to feed himself? Anyway, Amnon dismissed all his attendants. He wanted her to feed him. No problem. She took up the food, came into his bedroom, got close enough so as not to slop the food, and Amnon's hands locked on her wrists. Terror takes a second or two. In ten minutes, Tamar's whole life lies in tatters. After Tamar comes in and prepares the food, we see Amnon's command to the servants. Send, there it is again, send out everyone from me. And as as Davis noted in that picture, Amnon wanted to be alone with Tamar. And being the caring sister that she was, Tamar still seems to suspect nothing. In verse 10, Amnon says to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And it is here that the story takes a terrifying twist. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. Amnon is right about one thing. Tamar is certainly not interested in what Amnon has in mind. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Hear her protest. Don't do this wicked deed, Amnon. She even suggests that if Amnon asked the king that David would allow him to marry her. This may have been a final desperate plea from Tamar to distract him. The text doesn't tell us. But what does seem clear based on what we know about Tamar's character is that she's not only looking out for herself, she's also looking out for her brothers as well. And there's also some serious irony that's going on here also. Did you catch it? She says that this kind of thing is not done in Israel. Yet it had recently been done by Israel's king. John Woodhouse notes, as Tamar's speech warns Amnon, it also shows up David's act of lust. 
However, Tamar's words mean little to Amnon. And in fact, we read the phrase, but he would not listen to her, not once, but twice. It is the mark of a fool to ignore sound advice, as we are reminded all throughout the book of Proverbs. And Amnon is a fool in every sense of the word. At the center of this terrible narrative, we see the violent horror. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. This verse shows us that physical strength was the determining factor. When Pastor Matt preached on 2 Samuel 11 a couple weeks ago, which is the account of David and Bathsheba, he made the point that we should be very careful to be vocal where Scripture is silent. He made this point in reference to the speculation on if Bathsheba was raped or not. And the bottom line is Scripture is not clear on that, as the focus is on David's sin rather than Bathsheba's involvement. But the same thing cannot be said about Amnon and Tamar. The narrative removes any doubt about what has happened. And John Woodhouse points out that in the original Hebrew, the expression lay with her actually omits the word with, which makes it even more assertive. Woodhouse states there was no with in what Amnon did to Tamar. He lay her means he raped her. The language is brutal and brief, as was the act. And not just rape, which of course would be bad enough. Remember, this was incestuous rape, which makes it that much more diabolical. It was only after this horrible scene that Amnon discovered to his own and Tamar's loss the deceitfulness of temptation. Only a little while earlier, he claimed that he loved Tamar, but now where does he stand? Verse 15 tells us, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. What had started out as love had turned into hatred as a result of Amnon's sexual sin. Again, this should not surprise us. It's often said that sin always promises pleasure, but it always delivers pain. And Amnon discovered this truth out firsthand. What he thought was love was quickly discovered to be hatred. And whereas in the first half of the narrative, we see Amnon's so-called love reach its terrible conclusion, now in the second half of the story, we see the outworking of an even greater hatred. The end of verse 15 says, And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. His words were brutal, and they were rough, and he meant them to be. Again, we see Tamar's protest. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. However, we see once again that Amnon does not listen to her. And in verse 17, he calls his servant back in the room and tells him to put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. As Dale Davis notes, Amnon has neither ears nor heart. And that phrase, put this woman out, is the same Hebrew word for send. And actually similar to the original Hebrew omitting the word with, which, what we, which is what we just saw, in the original text, his command to his servant would actually be translated, send this out of my presence, leaving out the word woman. When the ch- chapter first started, Amnon called Tamar by name. Then when he asks her to lay with him, He only refers to her as my sister. 
Now he doesn't even care to say anything about her except to get her out. Dale Davis comments, he says, get this out as if Tamar were a bit of impersonal trash to be put out at the curb. And as verse 18 picks up, we see the state that Tamar is now left in, beginning in verse 18. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. Manhandled and kicked out, Tamar put dust on her head and ripped the robe that she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and left, crying the whole way. As one commentator puts it, she was a picture of utter misery. And from here we see that she lived in her brother's house and only one word summed up her life, desolate. It's clear that the writer wants you to feel your sympathies for Tamar. We are supposed to feel bad for her. He wants you to see the deep sinfulness of Amnon's deed and the sadness of that sinfulness in Tamar's condition. Dale Davis, in his commentary, labeled this section the perversion we ought to abhor. That's a very fitting heading. We should abhor this perversion. We should be angered by Amnon's treatment of Tamar. We must recognize that this perversion is everywhere today. And we need to hate it. You need to hate it. I need to hate it. And I think one of the clearest ways that we see this perversion is undoubtedly in the porn industry, where people are treated every day like impersonal trash to be put out at the curb. Ray Ortland has a phenomenal book that he wrote called The Death of Porn, Men of Integrity, Building a World of Nobility. And in this book, he highlights some of the evils, not only in the industry itself, but also why we ought to abhor this industry with everything in us. As he says, online porn is somebody siding with Satan. In highlighting men specifically, he paints the picture of what a man is really saying when he chooses to look. And this is raw, but I think he captures the picture very well. So pay attention to this and notice the direct parallels to the account that we just read with Amnon. So he says, Porn is a man saying to that woman, I don't care about you. I don't care about your personal story that got you to this place. I don't care what will happen to you when the filming is over, how you'll drag yourself back to your apartment and get drunk just to stop feeling the pain. I don't care about what you'll be facing tomorrow, which will be yet another day of this torment. I don't want to know what you are suffering. I don't even want to know your name. You don't matter. All that matters here is me. And not the royal me that God created, but the predatory me, the selfish me that Satan is robbing of life, even as I rob you of life. End quote. The word for that evil mentality is despair. And we ought to abhor this perversion. Abhor anything that smells of this perversion the songs that celebrate sex, the TV shows that promote this attitude toward women, the movies that make light of this ongoing abuse. 
as believers, we should rightly hate and abhor these evils. And coming back to the scriptures, we see the king's response as well as Absalom's reaction. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Many Bibles include a small footnote that adds to the ending of verse 21, stating that David was angry, however, he did not punish Amnon. David knew what, would ha- what had happened, and he was very angry, yet he did not punish him. And could it be that David did not punish his son because he saw so much of himself in Amnon? The ESV study Bible notes that because of his sin with Bathsheba, it appears that David had lost his moral courage and his clarity of judgment. This perhaps could have also played a role with how Absalom responds. David was rightly angry, and that should have led to a righteous result. His anger should have led to justice. Amnon should have been punished, and Tamar should have been acquitted. But that is not what happens. Instead, Amnon is not held accountable. Tamar receives no freedom, and Absalom is handed a plausible excuse for his revenge, which is what we see next. So continuing on, let's go ahead and look at this next section, Absalom's revenge. Starting in verse 23, going through verse 33. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons. For Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone is dead. So unlike Amnon's hatred for Tamar, Absalom's hatred for Amnon is a very sophisticated, high-class hatred. He doesn't reveal his cards. I'm convinced that Absalom would have been a terrific poker player because he puts on a great poker face for quite a while. He shows no clues of his hatred for Amnon, patiently waiting for the right time to strike. And now, after two full years, now was the time. Absalom was having a sheep-shearing party, and this was the perfect time to get his revenge in a way that would not seem suspicious. As Dell Davis notes, it was a perfect time to shear sheep and butcher Amnon. 
We see that Amnon first invites all of his brothers, and then he goes to the king and invites him and his servants. However, Absalom knows what he is doing. This is a ruse. Absalom only cares about getting Amnon to this party. But to make it not look suspicious, he first starts with all of his brothers, and then he invites the king. Or in other words, he invites his pops. He's having a party, and he wants his dad there. Now, what a good son. David sees the toll that it would be, and not wanting to be a burden, David turns down the offer. Again, this is all part of the plan. This opens the door for Absalom to get Amnon. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. After a little bit of back and forth, David obliges, and he sends Amnon and all of his brothers with him. And here is where we see Absalom show his hand. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The plan was actually quite simple. Get Amnon drunk, wait for the signal. Text doesn't tell us what the signal is. It may have been kill Amnon. We just don't know. And then upon receiving this signal, they were to kill him, kill Amnon. However, I find what Absalom says to his men at the end there absolutely fascinating. He says, do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. It's fascinating to me because that command there sounds eerily similar to the Lord's own words in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And it seems to me that Absalom substituted Lord your God with Absalom as he commanded his troops. And based on this command that he gives, there is little doubt that Absalom thought that this was a noble deed. Again, could this be because David failed to execute justice years prior? I think that certainly plays a major role. However, that does not excuse Absalom's sin in any way. Absalom forgot the words of the Lord in Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So whether he thought he was in the right or not did not matter. He clearly was in the wrong. He should have trusted in the Lord, knowing that vengeance is the Lord's, instead of trying to take justice into his own hands. And for the second time in this chapter, we see that this violent sin is carried out and successful as Amnon is killed and all of the sons of David leave to return home while Absalom heads in a different direction. And as David's sons are on their way, panic strikes as word comes to David that Absalom had killed all of his sons rather than just Amnon. In what seems like a very cruel game of telephone, David and all of his servants immediately tear their garments thinking that the worst thing has just happened. And I think it's telling that David and his sons are so quickly able to receive this gossip, essentially is what it is, um, and they're just so quick to receive it almost showing that it it almost seems that David and his sons, or David at least, was suspicious of Absalom's intentions. And so as soon as he hears it, his worst fears have just come to be realized. However, we know this, this isn't the truth. And Jonadab, we see, comes back into the scene once again. This time he comes to comfort David by telling him that this is a false rumor and that actually only one of his sons are dead. 
I find it funny that Jonadab seeks to comfort David by essentially saying, don't worry, David, all of your sons aren't dead. Only your firstborn son is dead. Remember back in verse 3, we read that Jonadab was Amnon's friend. And this is how he's comforting the king. And some friend that Jonadab truly is. And from here we turn to our last section looking at David's grief. While I've labeled this entire section as dealing with his grief, we actually are first brought back to the scene of the crime before seeing David. So again, let's go ahead and look at this section starting in verse 34 and we'll go to the end of the chapter. But Absalom fled and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So we're reminded twice in this account that Absalom fled. Of course, Absalom did not flee with the king's sons, but rather he fled in the opposite direction, escaping the grasp of his father. Just as David is hearing about the assassination, Absalom took himself beyond the king's reach. The next thing that happens is David's sons do return to him, and as they come, they immediately begin to weep over what has happened to Amnon. While the initial report was wrong, there was still a terrible thing that had taken place. David's firstborn was dead, and he was killed by the hand of his third son, Absalom. And in this, we see that David's house had become a house deeply divided against itself. As this episode comes to a close, we see that Absalom flees to Telmai, who is Absalom's maternal grandfather. And as time will show, Absalom has very specific reasons why he needed to withdraw from David's kingdom for a while. And after focusing on Absalom, the text closes looking at David and how he mourned for his son day after day. The obvious meaning is that he mourned over Amnon. However, I think it also refers to Absalom as well, his now estranged son, who he will certainly mourn over later on in life. And day after day literally means all the days. David mourned for his sons for the rest of his life. At this point, we've come all the way through 2 Samuel 13, which is certainly a bit of a doozy of a chapter. In this chapter, disaster follows disaster. Life in David's kingdom continues to rush along, driven by scheming, by lust, conniving, weakness, and hatred. And this chapter closes with no more mention of Tamar. In fact, we actually don't even hear from Tamar again. This implies that she is a shattered woman who remains ignored by justice and unrestored by murder. And God is never mentioned in the entire chapter. Not even one time do we see the name of the Lord. So the question becomes, what is God doing in all of this? Have things gone too far out of control? That is sometimes the impression that we can get anyways, especially in sections of Scripture like 2 Samuel 13. However, we know that this is not true. God is in control. 
The Lord is in control even when it seems like he isn't. We touched on this earlier in chapter 12, just a chapter earlier. God promised David that the sword would not depart from his house and that he was raising up disaster against him from his own house. Is that not exactly what has begun to happen in chapter 13? Many scholars point out the obvious connection to the disaster. Amnon's sexual sin with Tamar, corresponding with David's with Bathsheba, and Absalom's premeditated murder of Amnon, paralleling David's murder of Uriah. And so in this graphic episode, we see that the Lord is fulfilling his word of judgment against the house of David. From a human perspective, things seem to be completely out of control. And yet, in God's eyes, things are going perfectly according to plan, unpleasant as it is at the moment. God is present, and he is bringing his word to pass. And things look bad, but because of God's mercy and because of God's faithfulness, we know that things do not stay that way. In our Sunday school class that we've been going through with with the middle schoolers, we've been going through a few of the Old Testament messianic prophecies that are given by different prophets in Scripture. And one thing that we've spent a lot of time talking about is that the prophet's message to the people always had two parts to them. There was the initial message of rebuke. They would talk about how the people have rebelled against the Lord and that they essentially need to get their act together. But then the second part of the message was always a message of salvation, a message of hope for the people. I mean, how beautiful is that? None of these messages ever left the people without hope. Even if things seemed unbelievably messy, unbelievably chaotic, God never left the people in their misery, always reminding them that there is hope coming. There is a deliverer coming. And we see that in the case of David as well. For our scripture reading today, Pastor Matt read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the covenant that the Lord makes with David. And in this covenant that the Lord establishes with David, God promises that David's kingdom will be forever. That there will be a descendant of David, a son of David, who will reign forever. And in this promise, we see that even though things are looking pretty wild right now in the house of David, God is not done with him, and he is not done with the line of David. He has a good plan that is in the making. And his plan cannot be thwarted. Things will get better. This is a guarantee. And David can cling to that promise that there will be a deliverer who will come and will restore all things. And I want to leave you with one final quote from Dale Davis who sums up the hope that this covenant brought to David and consequently brings to us. The Lord's kingdom plan through David's dynasty is simply unstoppable. He will overwhelm death, sin, and time if need be to bring it about. And he has. The years wore on. Everything from foolish failures to blatant wickedness marked the lives of David's sons and the reigns of the Davidic kings. Israel is swept into exile and remains in subjugation to foreign powers. But a child, a Davidic child, is born. A son is given. In him is no sin. And he trampled over death through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And he has begun his endless reign at the place of supreme power and authority in the universe. Nothing more remains to be done but display to the world what is already the case, as it were, behind the scenes. The Lord's kingdom is unstoppable. End quote. 
it is unstoppable. And he calls us to call on him for the forgiveness of our sins and to surrender to him so that we can be made right with God, so that we can be a part of this unstoppable kingdom. That is good news. Believers, take heart that we are a part of God's unstoppable kingdom. Remind yourself of these truths and be comforted by them in the midst of trials. These truths are what sustained David. May they sustain us as well. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would ever be on our minds today as we leave here. God, you are so good to us. We pray that you would help us to remember the truth of your word. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We ask that that would be our confidence today, knowing that we serve a God who is not a liar and a God who keeps his word always. We thank you for the confidence and the hope that the gospel brings. Sustain us with these truths, we ask in your name. Amen.